Good afternoon and welcome to No Margin, No Mission, Optimizing CIO-CFO Relations, a health system CIO Media Inc. production. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments in, at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today. I do need a new picture of you, Chuck, if we're going to get the new mustache action. And Chuck, <laughs> Chuck Podesta, CIO at Renown Health, Mike Restuccia, SVP and CIO at Penn Medicine and University of Pennsylvania Health System, and Kelly Summers, SVP and CIO at Valleywise Health. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. This is a really interesting topic spurred by some of the stuff Chuck's been focusing on and thinking about, which is encouraging CIOs to do what he calls stick to the knitting and uh, really bring value to their organizations and not sort of get lost around innovation if you're not at that type of organization, right, Chuck? Um, right. So let's start with an overview of your organization and role, Chuck. Uh, th thanks, Anthony. Thanks for everybody taking time out of your busy schedules. Hope you find this uh, uh, enlightening for you. Um, my name is Chuck Podesta. I'm the uh, CIO of Renown Health out here in Reno, Nevada. As Anthony said, I do need a new picture. I used to be a clean cut <laughs> New England guy, and now I'm a Western cowboy uh, doing Western wear modeling. So I have these, you know, the big mustache for all that, and it actually is real. Uh, it's not it's not fake or anything. Um, I, I'm on a tail end of a cold, so hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been here about two and a half years. Uh, Renowned Health. We have an affiliation with the uh, University of um, uh, Nevada Reno uh, Medical School, so we're rapidly kind of morphing into uh, an academic medical center with research and and all those parts and pieces residency program. So excited about that! Uh, we just came through a, a big financial turnaround, almost uh, almost 150 million in one year, uh, which is fascinating. And and see, as part of that, I created this kind of stick to the knitting program that that Anthony mentioned, and a lot of that is really you know focusing on we were we were at seven percent of opex. Here, uh, our IT spend when I got here, we're now 4%. And we also have higher uh, employee engagement scores and higher customer service during that run. Uh, so it wasn't just about cutting. Uh, it, it's There's other uh, uh, pieces to that as to how to do it. And I think this is one component to that is that relationship to the CFO, which is extremely important, as you know, as CIOs uh, going forward. So I hope you find this uh, uh, worthwhile. Thanks, Anthony. Um, very good. And by the way, uh, Chuck did a full presentation on the stick to the knitting concept with us a few weeks ago. You can find that in our webinar section under archived webinars. So anybody who wants to enjoy that, that is very enlightening. Mike, a little bit about your organization and your role. Well, good morning and good afternoon to everyone. Uh, my name's Ristucci. I'm Senior Vice President, Chief Information Officer for Penn Medicine. For those not familiar with Penn Medicine, we are the integration of the University of Pennsylvania Health System and the Perlman School of Medicine. So to that end, our responsibility here is not only for patient care, but also for research computing. From a patient care perspective, uh, we're six hospitals presently, moving to more than six hospitals with uh, some planned acquisitions that have been announced. Uh, somewhere around uh, 50,000 employees 
and uh, from a research side, uh, nearly a billion dollars in annual grant dollars come in. So large organization, complex research, patient care, it's the integration point and uh, just a fabulous place to be for the last 17 years. It's a good run, Mike, 17 years, huh? So far, so good. <laughs> Very Albert, good. What's up for you? Kelly. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Anthony. Uh, Kelly Summers, the Senior Vice President, Chief Information Officer for Valleywise Health. Valleywise Health is in the greater Phoenix, Arizona area. Uh, we are an academic medical institution as well, affiliated with Creighton University. Um, we are a collection of uh, an acute care hospital, uh, three behavioral health hospitals, and 11 uh, federally qualified health centers. Uh, so we are a safety net institution. Uh, we do have the largest burn center. Uh, we are a level one trauma, largest burn center west of the Mississippi. So uh, again, level one trauma plus, uh, plus a, a burn program. Um, I've been with Valleywise 10 years, which is uh, kind of fascinating as a CIO, but uh, the majority of my experience was not in the provider side of healthcare. I come out of the the, uh, the corporate world, uh, 20 years in implantable medical electronics with uh, Medtronic and St. Jude Medical. I was CIO of a pharmaceutical company. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of those types of publicly traded um, experiences have have served me coming into uh, the provider side of healthcare. So thanks again. Hope uh, hope we have a great conversation. Excellent. Thank you, Kelly. All right. First question. Please describe the process or evolution of how you obtained your financial acumen. Were you mentored in this area? Did you teach yourself? Did you obtain any degrees? Are they important? Do you consider this one of your strengths? Um, Chuck, let's start with you. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Um, yeah, I, well, I've been a CIO for almost 30 years. So, you know, it wasn't something that happened, you know, in the first few years. But I've had almost every job in IT uh, from computer operator to programmer all the way up. And, and you know, you hit the financial aspects of each one of those as you go. Um, you know, you're responsible for certain parts of the budget, like as a on the computer side, on the uh, computer operator side, it was hardware maintenance, right? And then programmer, you're into the software maintenance side. And then as a director, you have a cost center, right? So you've got to manage that. So I came up kind of that way uh, and, and learned parts and pieces, you know, as I went. And then as you become into the CIO role, when you have the whole enchilada, you've got to understand uh, all the cost centers on all the components of that. So it was more self-taught uh, than anything. But I think going back, I, I think it would have been better to take some courses, you know, maybe the MBA route. I, I didn't go the MBA route. Um, for me, it was all, uh, uh, you know, just in time training and at work. Uh, but I also developed close relationships with the finance side. I was kind of drawn to that anyway. You had a lot of meetings with them, you know, monthly, quarterly, you know, budget times anyway. Um, had a lot of friends that were CFOs, uh, became CFOs and um, and just kind of absorbed it that way. So it was more natural uh, for me over time. But, you know, as I grew in my uh, career, my positions, I, I understood, you know, every step of the way how much, how important it was to have this background. And to do it over again, I think I would have accelerated a little bit more uh, with some training. Excellent. Very good. Mike. So I, I think my evolution 
has had a variety of different components. And, and real quickly, um, today and over the last past years, I probably spend 75 to 80% of my time here focused on human resources and budget, those two items. So big finance component in my day-to-day -day activities. And I've published and written and spoken about uh, each generation uh, or each era we've gone through has had a specific type of CIO or director of IS throughout the years. So back in the day, you were the technology guy that just tried to keep the servers and the systems flowing. And then you moved into the, you were the billing guy because now that we had systems, we could enhance billing. Uh, over time, that moved into more the business manager. And I think that's kind of the, the role and the style that I've introduced here. Um, certainly have uh, my MBA from Villanova University. Uh, but much like Kelly, before coming into the CIO role, I was in industry and I actually ran my own consulting firm uh, that we had for eight years and grew it and sold it. And, you know, if you want to learn how to manage budgets and you want to learn how to feel pain and if you really want to learn how to, uh, you know, make decisions and take risks, um, run your own business. Uh, know what it's like to go to the mailbox and pray that that check is there so you can make payroll this this week. Uh, so I think that was a big learning experience for me combined with my uh, MBA uh, on how I thought I was the right type of fit for this era of implementing basically the EHR, right? A lot of it that if we look back, uh, that would be the big thing that we saw through 2010 through, through 2020, in addition to dealing with COVID. Uh, but I think those two experiences combined really positioned me well for what this era of CIO is all about. Looking forward, I think the era of the CIO is going to be all about operations and taking all this technology and newfangled stuff that exists out there, gadgets, widgets, AI, and transforming it into uh, day-to-day -day workflow and day-to-day -day care. Uh, and, and I think that's a different type of person than I am at this point in time. Uh, but the good news is there's plenty of folks that uh, have that operational experience and, and can push things forward in the future. Very interesting. Kelly, your thoughts? Well, you know, uh, my undergraduate degrees, <clears throat> they, I was dual path in business administration and computer information systems. So as I tell my financial colleagues, I, you know, I flex my muscles on my three semesters of accounting and, and one semester of econ. So, <laughs> um, I, but I think that really makes us, uh, uh, you know, I refer to myself a lot as a translator, right? That, you know, I have to translate technology to business oriented people, maybe to clinical people. Uh, I work very closely with the financial team so we can translate those financial challenges and what they mean. You know, if our margin's not there, if we're making a loss, then what can we do with what we have? Um, <clears throat> much like Mike, as I alluded to, coming out of the corporate world, you know, certain, certainly learning how to have objectives, whether it's product development and understanding what our margins need to be to get that product out and hopefully make a profit. Now, in the land of nonprofit, it's a little bit different, but I think those experiences are kind of a, uh, a mosaic in my background to uh, to bring to bring forward. All right, very good. <clears throat> Next question, um, Mike, we're gonna start with you. How would you describe the level of financial literacy that CIOs need? Obviously they don't need to know as much as CFOs, but how would you describe what you need to know? 
And I would imagine it's different what's required to run a two hospital system versus the 20, 30, 40 hospital system, different skill sets mm-hmm. involved when it comes to the financial part. But tell me your thoughts, Mike. Yeah, I, I think regardless of the size, Anthony, uh, the CIO has to have significant financial literacy uh, because what are the statistics these days? 75% of all hospitals are losing money at this point or not profitable. And you know, generally, if that's the general number, uh, there's a lot of hard decisions that have to be made. And there's a lot of rationalization ha- that has to be made around uh, which projects you're going to proceed with and what benefits they're going to bring. And a lot of my discussion today will be around benefits realization and the program we put in place here to clearly communicate what anticipated benefits will be attained based upon the implementation of a particular project or a particular effort. And that has been um, probably one of the key reasons why I could last at a environment like this for 17 years is people understand the financial literacy they trust based upon uh, past efforts. They trust the data and they've seen the results. Um, And tied to that, our operational partners that we enable are accountable for achieving those results. So just because you implement a piece of technology and someone says, well, it's going to generate 20% more revenue or it's going to reduce expense by 11%, great. After a year, you go back and review to see if that was actually attained. And if so, great. If not, why? And who's accountable? So um, I think it's whether two hospital system, 40 other, you have to have significant financial literacy. Uh, and it's why I spend so much time on budget and then human resources, because it's all about people to get stuff done. Very good. Kelly? You know, I think my answer to that um, question, Anthony, is is really uh, a little bit higher order, which which I refer to as strategic alignment. I, I think as CIOs, we have to be strategically aligned with our business, which includes uh, finance, right? And I think more than anything, for the, in my opinion, the role of a CIO is to be able to participate in and articulate how technology needs to align to the strategic objectives of the organization that have the boundaries of of finance, what we can afford to do. And I think that's often a a gap sometimes because you'll have one part of the organization that has very high aspirations of something that requires technology. Well, I'm the one that, you know, I often will say this, hey, I, I could make my budget zero if you guys would stop asking for things, right? I mean, <laughs> and so that's that's the piece where we have to align from the, the folks that are driving strategy that are trying to, you know, solve a, you know, a, a, a clinical outreach problem, but do it in alignment with the CFO, because then it's really, we're working on this together. I don't like to be just on the side of technology that, you know, I'm having to come back and justify my capital expense or my operating expense. I really want to be arm in arm with the the business leaders, the clinical leaders, and the finance people where we're all strategically aligned uh, on those objectives. And frankly, they become uh, collaborators with me justifying the budget that I'm having to bring forth. Excellent. Very good. Uh, Chuck, your thoughts? 
Yeah, so just to expand on, on uh, Mike and Kelly, uh, what they're talking about is I think it really comes down to the strong governance that you have to have in your organization. And we use the SBAR approach, which I've talked about in the past, but the R, the SBAR, is the recommendation aspect uh, of, of whatever you're bringing forward. And as part of that recommendation is an ROI, and that's required. And, and, and it used to be kind of, oh, if it increased production or efficiencies or quality, things like that, all are very important. But now it's like, okay, what is it saving us or is it increasing revenue, right? And, and where does that work? And, and the operation side is the one that's going to carry that forward, right? It's not going to be the IT group carrying forward a cost-saving initiative in some other organization, some other part of the organization or a revenue enhancement. So they're going to be on board with that and coming in and doing those presentations and, and owning, you know, that ROI. And that's significant. Uh, that That's a big change. And when you think about the CFO involvement in that, you've got to work very closely because when you develop that ROI, you can't do it just within IT. Now you have to do it with the finance group and, and with the CFO. And in our governance, the, the ROI is signed off by finance. And you cannot go into, uh, we, we have a president's council that does all the vetting of these projects. You can't go into that group of senior leaders and present an ROI that hasn't been signed off by the, the CFO and the finance organization. So again, back to the stick to the knee, you have to have, have to have that discipline within your organization uh, to get that those results um, that, that Mike and Kelly are talking about. Excellent. All right, very good. Well, I'm going to bring a, uh, throw out an audience question. Our good friend, Todd Richardson, uh, former uh, retired now CIO, um, recovering, retired, you know, we all can imagine <laughs> that feeling. Hey, Todd. Um, <laughs> um, let's, let's read this out. Um, it's it's great to shoot for benchmarking numbers such as quote IT expense as a percentage of net revenue end quote. However, um, an organization's philosophy on capitalizing equipment and labor can greatly impact what actually hits operating expense, along with who carries depreciation. How do you manage these various numbers to ensure you are comparing apples to apples with benchmarking? Um, that's what I'm talking about financial literacy. I can't even understand the goddamn question. Um, Mike, I have a feeling you can, uh, you want to give us some thoughts on that question? Yeah, it is a challenge because it depends, you know, you, you can figure the numbers any way you want, who carries depreciation, who, who has clinical engineering, who doesn't, uh, all those types of things. So I, what we have found here is just to be consistent over the years as to what's included, what's not included, and then based any judgments based upon that consistency year after year after year. So you're chuckling. Well, so Todd just wrote a lot the lies, damn lies and statistics. I think he's right. right. It's yeah. exactly what there is. And um, so totally agree with that. But, you know, what we found is if as long as we're consistent throughout the years, we can then measure to benchmarks. Um, and, you know, we use them sort of as guidelines. If you're plus or minus 10 percent, you're within the range. But if you're well outside of that, then perhaps you have a, an adjustment that needs to be made. I, I think Chuck might have mentioned earlier about increasing the expense spend uh, for his IT team, which is great. He's winning that battle. Some of us, uh, he's better than some of us uh, at, at that. So, you know, we'll have to learn from him how he's doing it. Uh, but that, that was the whole thing I was thinking of when you were reading off the question. As long as you're consistent 
then you have a stable foundation to, to measure against. Uh, Todd wrote, but do you know how the benchmarks you are measuring against are the same as yours? Not always. Honestly, not always. But then you ask the questions, what's in, what's out? Um, we happen to be a client of uh, Epic Corporation. And there you can have a discussion as to what's in their benchmarks. Right. Uh, and, and that's one of them. When we look at Gartner or Forrester or others, it's a little bit harder to determine because uh, they're not always sure what's in and what's out. But uh, what we found is working with Epic, they tend to give us the best guideline. Yeah. Chuck, any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and and uh, Mike's uh, spot on. Great question, Todd. Yeah, I work with uh, Epic as well, and and their benchmarking is getting pretty refined. And you can you can get out there and get five or six or a bunch of other organizations that are very similar to yours in size, and start doing some of those comparisons. Uh, the other thing that I do is I break it down. You know, when I said I talked about seven percent earlier, I also break it down into different categories, like software maintenance, right? You can get benchmarks just in those pies, uh, which are, are very important because, you know, when I got here, we had 740 applications and we were spending almost $30 million in software maintenance for our organization size. Way too big because I can take that and measure that across other organizations. So you can start to stratify. We should be somewhere in the 18, 20 million. So what did we do? Start application rationalization, right? And we've saved, we've chopped out 130 applications and about $5 million so far. And we're, it's a journey that probably will never end. But again, with strong governance, we'll stop the bleeding on, on that end. So you you can use, and, and Todd's right, it's, 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 uh, it, it's, you can't be exact. It's not exact science, but you got to start somewhere and, and put a line in the sand and then start breaking into its component parts and attack those with different strategies. And then, and then you can, um, um, you know, at that point, I think you can, you know, get to where you need to go. But uh, he's right. I mean, it's not exact. Kelly, any thoughts? You know, the only thing that I would uh, maybe add to both what uh, Mike and Chuck uh, mentioned, and and this is a little bit of my soapbox speech about the, the I'm going to refer to as the technology immaturity in healthcare, because if you really think about it, and if we're honest, it was what, 2008, 2009, when meaningful use uh, came into play. And all of this money came from the government for all of our health system to start deploying technology. Um, a lot of other industries have a longer maturity in the management and development and efficiency of technology. I think we in healthcare uh, need to stay focused and aware of other industries where we can learn from other industries that have taken some of these efficiencies. Now, healthcare is unique, don't get me wrong, but I think we've got to be open to listening to other industries and learning from other industries as well. All right, very good. Um, let's, uh, let's keep moving forward. That was a good debate. Um, almost all CIOs will have come up through IT and not finance. Of course, what's your best advice for aspiring CIOs to obtain the required financial knowledge to operate at the CIO level? We've discussed the importance. You have to have a high degree of financial literacy. It doesn't sound like it's a bad idea if you want to be a CIO to have an MBA in your plan at some point. Um, but Kelly, uh, 
what would your advice be for a young IT professional that says, that's where I want to go, but I have no background in fire. I'm an IT guy. I'm a tech guy. I'm a computer guy. I don't know spreadsheets and tables and pivot tables. I don't know any of this stuff. So what's your best advice? You know, what I learned early in my career um, was if I was not going to work for a technology company, if I wasn't going to work for for Microsoft or Apple, then I was going to be working for a business that was using technology to run their business. Mm -hmm. So, and I agree, you know, Mike, you said something earlier about the, the evolution of the CIO when CIOs used to be technical, then they became more business oriented. I, I personally believe that was also the introduction of the CTO because then CIOs needed to hire somebody that was technical enough for them to augment their, their shortcomings in technology. But I would say, again, understanding that you're running a business, you're helping to run a business, you're helping to enable running a business. So however you can gain either the knowledge of aligning yourselves to the business people, to the finance people, understanding what their objectives are, or, you know, I, I would always say, you know, you know, advanced degrees are critically important for those that pursue those. So I would certainly say, you know, uh, an, an MBA, a focus of concentration in finance uh, would never be a bad thing at all. But I, I think more importantly, you almost have to think like a business person first before you think of being a technologist. Mike, Mike I see you nodding your head. What would you want to add? Perhaps uh, one of the reasons why I'm here 17 years is I bill myself as the least technology advanced CIO in the country. Um, and, and to Kelly and others' points, um, we hire really strong subject matter experts to take care of that particular tower or area. And, and our role is to be a mile wide and a few inches deep across that large span of, of, of territory. Um, so in our role, I talk about budget, I talk about people, but we're problem solvers. And I think to be a strong problem solver, you have to have some of that background and experience. I, I, don't, I don't think you have to mandate some type of advanced degree but I think it has to be highly, highly encouraged uh, to, to get that degree because it's not only finance, but it's operations and it's problem solving. And being that type of person that can meld operational and IT folks together, that can meld your own teams together. We all have large staffs. I know here at Penn Medicine, uh, by far, I have the largest uh, share of corporate services dollars. Corporate IT goes, so goes marketing and HR and uh, finance and whatever, just because the size of IS is, is so large. And generally speaking, we operate at a pretty low percentage to net patient revenue, well well below you know, the, the average, but we're still the largest. So problem solving uh, it is key. And I think I would get that advanced degree. And at worst, if you don't do that, you should do a tour in finance and really understand what those folks go through on a day-to-day -day basis and how that machine works. Because at the end of the day, sometimes they just say, yeah, we hear how much you think you need, but here's what you're getting. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens in all instances. And I think that might've been part of Todd's questioning is you can justify all you want, 
But at the end of the day, you get what they tell you you're going to get. I think to understand that machine called finance uh, is really important because then you have a choice as to whether you want to stay or go. Mm -hmm. And like, not enough. Well, then maybe you should go work somewhere else or do something else. But, you know, that's the problem solving component of it. Chuck? Yeah, no, great, great points. Um, the only thing I would add to that is the way, you know, I would approach if you're a CIO, you're now a CIO, right? And you're a little bit lacking. Um, and maybe you don't have enough time to, you know, it's not part of your career to do the uh, to do the advanced degree or, you know, you're you're a little bit older and you're beyond that or whatever your thought process is, is to look at you know when you're brought into finance, you have that monthly budget meeting, right? So, you know, you're looking at the entire organization. So do you know what a P&L is? Uh, do you know how to break down a P&L? Do you know what the what the components of a P&L, how it's put together? You know, understand just that, right? Uh, EBITDA, do you know what EBITDA is? Uh, you know, understand what that is. Uh, days of cash, you know, understand these components that are presented every single month. And then, and then on the other side is how to put a budget together, right? Do you know what zero-based budgeting is? Uh, that's a key, you know, Understanding what zero-based budgeting is will get you a long way each and every year, especially with the CFO. They love zero-based budgeting because you're not just taking what the previous year is and building off of it. You're starting from scratch in a lot of ways and, and getting rid of things, not just adding things all the time. It's a different concept. Um, so it's that kind of uh, uh, just-in-time learning almost uh, that, you can, that you can do and, and do it quickly. Um, uh, and I think that that would go a long way, uh, for you as well. Excellent. All right. Uh, I'm going to throw out a little fun poll here and, uh, everybody can answer that and then we'll have a little fun looking at it. Uh, here's the concept, right? I'm, we assume a lot of people on this call are proficient IT professionals. I'm a proficient IT professional. We're saying, but sometimes I have imposter syndrome when it comes to my financial acumen. So sometimes I'm in a room and I'm like, they're going to find me out. I don't know what zero-based budgeting is or EBITDA, or I know some of those letters, but not all of them. I don't know. Um, it's just very interesting. So if you want to take a minute, we'll just see if people feel. Do they have? Are these IT folks super confident? and Or are they like, you know what? I'm teetering on the edge of being found out. So. Um, all right, next question. This is a fun one. <clears throat> what are some tips for CIOs who will want to build a solid relationship with their CFOs? What are some do's and don'ts? Kelly, can you can you go about that the wrong way? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. So when I started at Valleywise Health 10 years ago, there was one cost center for IT, and I was shocked. So the first thing that I did was separate every functional area and director with their own cost center. I made them responsible, accountable, and visible to their respective areas of, of P&L, to be honest with you. So uh, for me, that was in some, some of those directors had not had that before, which was interesting. So once they became, you know, a visible, responsible to their particular line of business, their department, uh, that really accelerated their learning curve on a financial acumen because then I was holding them accountable for their respective cost center, financial performance, you know, uh, staffing, et cetera. So that was the technique that I applied. You were doing them actually a favor, right? Because you I, helped them develop those skills. 
yeah, I think so. But I think it also, it, you know, a, a, a byproduct of it, Anthony, also was uh, it, it showed the financial team that I was trying to drive some ownership and accountability down through the IT organization. Very good. Mike, let's say you're uh, uh, either a newly minted CIO at your organization or you've started as a CIO at a new organization. Um, from our discussions here, that relationship with the CFO, CFO, we probably assume they were part of the interview process, right? If you're hired at any health system, do we assume that the CFO did a, a, an interview with the CIO? But once you get in, what's your best advice for, you know, considering how important that relationship is to making it work? Yeah. So I, I think we would agree that the CIO and the CFO are both part of the C-suite and thus part of the senior leadership team. And so, you know, relationship is ever more important. You need to function as a team in that suite. Um, and, and to that end, I find two things. One is really understanding the pressures that a CFO might be under in order to make sure you're enabling uh, the, the health system efforts and be supportive of that CFO. It could be capital investment. It could be shortage in OPEX. We've all gone through uh, the recent uh, escalation in cost of care and the impact that has on overall profitability. You know, those are pressures that that CFO goes to bed each and every night wondering, how am I going to make up that difference? And so understanding how you can help make up that difference and building that rapport and relationship through collaborate is ever more important. And I think when you have that type of teamwork and partnership, uh, that's really critical. Because if you're at odds with your CFO, it's just a matter of time before you're no longer the CIO. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to go the other way, Mike. Is yeah, it? It, it's certainly not going to go the other way. So <laughs> I, that's one thing I would say. That's awesome, Mike. That's great. Great point. Is um, you have to be really transparent in the good, the bad, and ugly that takes place uh, in, in enabling those strategic objectives that, you know, Kelly and, and Chuck have, have indicated. And that means reiterating the good that's happened because you're only as good as your last project. And so keep reiterating the good things that are happening. But if it's not going well, I think you have to be equally as transparent. You know, we thought it would take a million dollars, but now it's going to take a million two. Um, so I need $200,000 for these reasons. And, you know, being upfront about it, don't try to be sneaky. Don't try to be, don't finance that machine that we talk about, that zero-based budgeting. Like, they'll figure it out. And you don't want to get caught. You, you just let it all out and be upfront about it. So, you know, I think collaboration with your CFO is, is critical and transparency is ever more important. Yeah, Chuck. So, following up on on what Mike said, is yeah. that what the financial folks hate the most? Is surprises? Well, actually, when you talk to any leader, they even CIOs. Yeah. What do you hate the most? Surprises. Right. Everybody hates surprises. So, right. tell me your thoughts, Chuck. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, Mike and Kelly are spot on. Uh, what what we're talking about here is building credibility and trust, right? And you want to do that day one with your CFO. Now, it used to be harder. Uh, back in the day, you know, CFOs viewed IT as a cost center, right? There was no value in a, in, in in IT in us. And, and uh, you know, you ran across, and, and, and that's not the case anymore. CFOs understand 
the benefits of the technology uh, for the most part. Uh, yeah, you might run into some of them that are um, still skeptical back in the day and, and still viewed a little bit as a cost center. Uh, but and, and the ones that are still skeptical, I think that's our fault as CIOs. We, we're not taking the approach that Mike and Kelly are with our CFOs. We're high. We, we've got slush budgets over here, you know, and just in case something happens. Uh, and, and Mike's spot on. It's the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, my first meeting with a CFO here. And by the way, it is my first meeting of the senior leadership group uh, is the CFO before I meet with anybody else. Uh, and I went in there, I did my homework. I knew what my budget was. I knew why I was at 7%. My first thing out of my mouth was, you know what? Um, uh, we're spending too much money in it. Um, uh, you know, once I picked the CFO up off the floor, right. Um, she was like, you're not here to ask me for more money. And I'm like, no, I'm here to save some money and here's how we're going to do it. And, and we started off the conversation that way. And it was amazing. Um, and, and she was very helpful. She was, well, you know, I'd say in the first year, this will, well, slow down a little bit, Chuck. Maybe you're going a little too fast on that savings things. We still need to do some investment here. You know, imagine that now, a CFO saying that to you, right? So, you know, you've got to be really open and honest with them. And then what will happen is after what happened here, after a couple of years, once I got to the where I needed to be on the benchmark, um, now I go in. We've got our financial turnaround. We're doing strategic planning. Now we need to move forward with some projects that we've held off on. And I've had discussions with the CEO and the CFO to say, you know, I'm going to be asking for money. And the first thing out of their mouth is, Chuck, you did everything, you and your team, that you said you were going to do. Yeah. And we understand that you're going to need to invest now. You tell us what that is and we will do it because we trust you <laughs> and you have credibility now. And that's what it's all about. That's what you're trying to, uh, not just with the CFO, but with your senior leader group, but you start with the CFO. All right, excellent. Well, I'm gonna share the poll results. 50-50, uh, huh. interesting. I'll so there that. is a little bit, I was, I'm gonna say I was right. There is a little bit of imposter syndrome out there. Um, yeah. You know, the numbers can be scary if that's not your thing. If you're not a sort of inclined, Chuck, you said you were always kind of drawn to it. As an interest, like th I find this interesting. Um, I would imagine not everybody who comes up uh, interested in IT is drawn to uh, these type of things that you mentioned, but they have to be. Otherwise, you're going to hit a ceiling, right? You're going right. to hit a ceiling unless you embrace this stuff. So that's important. Um, I want to get to one of my very favorite um, segments, the Ask a Co-Panelist. I want to hear from you gentlemen, what uh, you're curious about, how your colleagues on the panel are handling, something you're working through dealing with and would like some real practical suggestions on how you might want to deal with it. So Kelly, I'm going to start with you. You have a question for one or both of your co-panelists. Well, I, I do for 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 both Mike or, or Chuck. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, technology, but what, what I've been trying to do over the last few years is to really translate the use and utility of data. And let me give you where I started. Um, a, a program that, that we tried to start a few years ago was around leakage, right? We, we've got patients and how much of them are we losing? I, we, we wanted to translate that into keepage. So are you guys, do you guys have any programs where you're working with your service lines where you have a patient but you want to see how many times that patient, for whatever reason, is getting referred out 
And how are you using data to help your service line folks and your financial folks get visibility to that? Uh, Mike, Mike, you want to start? Uh, maybe I'll let Chuck start. He's Chuck? He's shaking his head more than Go I Go ahead, am. Chuck. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, you know, I'll tell you a specific instance we have here that's around leakage, but it's kind of, it's somewhat self-inflicted. Um, you know, we have, we have a pretty high market share in Northern Nevada. We're the only integrated delivery network. We do a competition, uh, but we don't have enough primary care. And I'm sure you guys can and say that as well. And so we have a lot of people coming in from California now, you know, because of high cost of California, low cost of Nevada, you know, COVID, all that kind of stuff kind of forced all that remote workers out of Silicon Valley. And so you get these first time patients coming in and trying to get appointments. And, and what we're finding is we're not, we're not able to make that a smooth digital process. And we have an initiative, a digital front door initiative kicking off this year uh, for that. Uh, and what's happening is they're going other places because of that, right? Uh, they're going to other, and once they go to somewhere, they're gone. Right. Unless they have a bad experience at that other organization. Uh, so that's a kind of leakage uh, that we're dealing with right now. And we're and we know what the numbers are on that. And we're trying to do more self-scheduling. And uh, we're certainly hiring a bunch of uh, physicians to do that. But again, on the data side, um, Kelly, you spot on. It is all about the data. You better have a, a very good enterprise data analytics group. Um, you're starting to see chief analytics officers out there right now. We have our first one here. Um, you know, we're moving into research as well. So it's important to have that. But data is going to be king on everything that we do going forward, not to judge the financial stuff, but everything that you're you're talking about, worried about. And you've got to build that up um, and 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 um, and get some smart people in to manipulate that data. Otherwise, uh, you know, somebody else is going to do that and and they're going to understand your numbers better than you do. Mike, anything yeah. you want to add? All, all great points. Um, we are a little different in the Philadelphia region in that we have within 10 mile radius, four academic medical centers, some large community hospitals right next door is a children's hospital. Um, so we certainly recognize the, the challenge associated with leakage. Um, and, you know, the belief that patients will go where they're most comfortable and where it's most convenient or where they can get the fastest appointment. And, uh, where they engage the most. And so our strategy around that uh, has been from a digital perspective. How do we better digitally engage the patient to make that transaction and that experience, most importantly here at Penn Medicine, the most seamless and smooth that can be with either a teletype of visit or some type of self-scheduling, right. follow-up, care, care coordination, those types of things. Um, Patients have choices and they're going to continue to make choices based upon referrals and who their friend says to go to. And it might be a competing organization or an alternative organization. Uh, but once they get here, we want to do everything we can to to keep them and engage them. And um, the best way we found is through the higher level of digital engagement. So that they both made my point, Anthony. They're all enabled by technology, right? So yeah. there's line businesses that are enabled by technology. Correct. Excellent. Very good. All right. Mike, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, it goes back to a career type of uh, 
growth and aspirations and wondering if each of you outside of a family member have had an individual that served as a great mentor that led to your great achievement and success in the, the roles that you're in. As you look back on your career, was there that one person that, man, they just shared something or they took an interest in me and, you know, helped groom me and motivate me and uh, was kind of curious who, who's that person outside of a family member? What a great question. Uh, uh, Chuck, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was actually a, a CIO uh, that I worked for when I was at the uh, I was at a director level, working my way up. So I was much more. I was very operation oriented. You know, at the director level, you're kind of eighty percent operations, twenty percent maybe strategy. Uh, CIO, it's kind of you know the opposite of that. And <laughs> and yeah, and we really worked together well. He uh, he was the CEO of IT, and I was the COO of IT. And that's how we worked. But he always brought me into the strategy world. Um, and I got to rearrange my thinking. Uh, and, and that allowed me to make that leap because a lot of CIOs can't make it, you know, can't get that leap from the director level of CIO because they're, they're too much in the operations, can't do the strategy side. And he would do things like, you know, uh, four days before he was on a, doing a presentation at some conference, Chuck, I can't go. Here's my slides. <laughs> good time right and throw and scared i mean scared to death right um and i always i still find myself but i and i actually brought me to another organization uh and then when he left i actually became the interim uh cio it's my first interim job right. and i still to this day when i'm faced with an issue a work issue I would, I would think you know what would he do in this situation and i knew him so well that i would, it would actually get an answer from him without him being in the room wow <laughs> any sense. So that's, that's, that's great. Excellent. <laughs> Kelly. You know, mine was, uh, <clears throat> as I was thinking about, uh, both, uh, Chuck answering that question, mine goes back to my first job. Uh, my first job was, a, as a software engineer in aerospace. So if you know, <laughs> airplanes, uh, military aircraft, I, I was a programmer that worked on the SR 71 Blackbird. And there was a, there was a senior technical leader. He was not a director, but who hated presenting and talking to the pilots and the navigators of that aircraft. And he saw in me a little bit of technical acumen, but a little bit more of an extroverted personality. And he, he poured into me to allow me to kind of take his position and do some of the, the training of the flight crews to train and, yeah. and brief uh, I mean, pretty low, high level, oh, you know, 05s, 06s, so lieutenant colonels and colonels uh, on aspects of the project and the system that we were working on. And so that lesson for me was to always be looking out in the organization for that guy or gal that has this high potential and, yeah. to, pour, and to pour into them because that's sometimes all it is, right? Is that little switch that if you give somebody that chance, man, they're like on the launch pad and they can achieve great things. So for me, it was it was somebody very early in my career that I that I reflect on. Yeah, that's great, Mike. Can we turn that question on you? Oh, I love it. Um, thank you for doing that. Uh, I asked the question because we we had a discussion over this weekend about the mentorship and. To me, uh, and you're probably all familiar with uh, First Consulting Group and the founder of mm -hmm. First Consulting Group yeah. was Jim Reap. 
And Jim, you know, as I was a member of that team, an early, you know, member of that team, uh, he always professed, uh, be honest, be transparent. You've heard me use those words. Because at the end of the day in consulting, your name is everything. Right. And there's no product standing behind you. There's no big machine. There's no, it, it's just you, it's your name. And that's something that really formed me uh, for years to come as to, you know, at the end of the day, it's your, it's your name. And so don't do anything silly. Communicate, you know, your thoughts in an honest way. And, uh, you know, represent your name like the and polish it like it's the gem of, of all gems. And, uh, you know, Jim Reek was, was that person for me. That's great. That's great stuff. Uh, and I always tell my kids in terms of uh, talking about transparency and honesty, I said, remember something. Everybody gets caught on everything. <laughs> I, you're always, I guarantee you, eventually, you're always going to get caught. So don't bother. Be honest, be transparent, and as you said, your reputation is everything. Because we hear everybody gets caught all the time in public, in in, in the world. Everybody's caught eventually. Yeah, it's You're like, not going to get away with anything, yeah. guaranteed. It's so. not. It's never the crime, Anthony. It's always the cover up. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, Chuck, uh, your turn. A question for one or both of your co-panelists. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, actually the nuts and bolts of that, I was interested in your governance process, just a high level. Um, you know, we, we've got a pretty solid one here. It's, it's um, we don't have an IT steering committee. We use our president's council. We meet every Wednesday anyway for three and a half hours. I mean, we have full agendas. All of our S bars that I talked about go through there. There's a certain dollar limit, you know, uh, if it's under that, it doesn't do that. But um and and that's worked quite well, but I'm always interested in learning what other uh, folks are doing for governance. Kelly, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I I have a tiered governance uh, uh, approach, Chuck. So we have um, you know the the lower level I call them subcommittees um, where I embed some of my folks, mostly directors or managers, into into the into clinical teams. So there's an ambulatory uh, governance group that we participate in, which is everything around what's going on with ambulatory. We then do uh, service line governance, where again, I've got an IT person embedded into uh, our ED and trauma committee, our nursing committee, things like that, because I view all of my IT folks as little intelligence agents, right? Yeah. So if they're, <laughs> if they're embedded into those teams, we can hear about things, either issues or potential projects that are coming up. So we use those subcommittees. Those subcommittees then do filter into uh, an IT steering committee that's kind of at the VP level. And then uh, similar, Chuck, for, for the big ticket, high risk items, uh, we use President's Council for that as well. Thank you. Mike? So University of Pennsylvania, health system, uh, first hospital in the country, first school of medicine in the country. We are a Quaker at the roots. We are a Quaker organization. So if you've seen Hamilton or John Adams and Ben Franklin, I mean, there's a lot of talk that goes on, right? A lot of discussion. And the result of that, uh, and, and there's no voting. There, you have to come to consensus. So there's there's no voting on, on issues. It's consensus. Um, 
the end result of that is, you know, we have governance gone wild here. <laughs> so um, this is a little bit of a sore spot. So Chuck, great question. And, you know, getting underneath my skin here. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but um, I can, I'll deal with it. It's, uh, we have 113 different governance committees, some of them advisory, some of them decision-making, some of them recommending. And, you know, we're in the process of saying this was great as we evolved over time and went from three hospitals to soon to be seven or eight hospitals uh, with a variety of different independent EHRs to one common EHR. This is great that we've evolved, but now we have to find a way to shrink that back down and get more streamlined in our, dis- in our governance committee. But, you know, you kind of go with what your environment's like. Um, when I worked uh, a much smaller, you know, independent hospital, really the C- COO, CFO, and CNO, they made like 80 or 90% of all the decisions. You just went to them and they made the decision. And governance wasn't as uh, mature in, in a large academic particularly in a world that uh, has its base with a Quaker organization and everybody has a say, everybody has to be heard from. Uh, you evolve into this large governance gone wild uh, view and we just need to trim it back at this point. Wow. There's your, there's your next webinar, Anthony. I was, I'm, <laughs> Mike, I'm, I'm picturing the uh, the jury system where you need a unanimous verdict and one, one holdout and uh, you got a hung jury and nothing's going to happen. It is, um, it's, it's, but once things move, right, once you make a decision, yeah. organization does move uniformly and in, in una, unanimity uh, uh, through that. So you actually do get big things done, but it takes a while getting that decision. All right. Very good. I think we're going to go to a final thought um, before we, uh, we get shaking. Um, there we go. All right. So, uh, how are we going to couch this? Let's get, you know, the, the theme of this is financial acumen for it folks. Um, and I guess we're just going to go for your best piece of advice, uh, to someone, Kelly, let's, let's put it this way. Um, you've got an aspiring CIO or a CIO who feels like this is a weakness and who feels like the more and more is expected of them then they feel comfortable with and they've re you know, what do we do? I mean, do you go out and buy, you know, finance for dummies? Uh, <laughs> do you jump in and take a class? Like what's your best advice for that individual? Like, I'm not sure I'm strong enough in this area and I'm, I'm worried. What's your best piece of advice, Kelly? You know, I, I think relationships, I mean, education is always going to be the best path, but I can tell you, uh, you know, mid, mid in my career, it was aligning myself to some people in finance, maybe not the CFO, but the director of finance or the VP of finance, somebody that at when I was at that level, I could align with and frankly have a far more candid conversation than with the CFO. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, again, finding those allies that you can in finance and having them help you, they, they will absolutely, I think, if you pose to them your challenge, your problem statement, and say, you know, what what counsel could you give me, or how could how could you how could I partner with you, so we can do a better job presenting to the CFO or to my boss if I'm not the CIO or whatever. But I I think that could go a long way. 
It's a great, great piece of advice. Mike, your final piece of advice for someone in that scenario. It's along the same lines. It's it's relationship building. And if it's not with the CFO, that is going to educate you and make you uh, more more cognizant. Uh, Work with another member of that team because, you know, it's finance. It's it's not that hard. It's been around forever. It really doesn't (laughs) change. You know, they're you know, they're number crunchers. We're dealing with artificial intelligence, cognitive computing. You know, we got the, the hard stuff. You probably know more than you think. And the little bit you have to pick up, uh, director of finance can help you there. I love it, Mike. We give him a little confidence. Uh, that's like a little pat on the back. You can do this. I love it. Uh, Chuck, your yeah, final thought. Actually, when, when, you know, what Kelly and Mike are saying actually builds, actually helps build a relationship with the CFO. Because can you imagine, you know, taking a step further, walking into the CFO and saying, you know what, this is a real weakness of mine. <laughs> Can you assign somebody in your organization to me? Uh, you know, whether it's the person that's working with my budget anyway or somebody else um, and and help mentor me in that. Imagine that. Um, yeah. Imagine the reaction of the CFO. Wow. Um, you know, and again, it's on the same lines as what a different way of doing it, but the results are the same. Yeah, it's a little bit of just just come clean and ask for help. Right. As uh, yeah. as opposed to just uh, not being able to sleep at night. Um, excellent. Excellent conversation. We are out of time regarding continuing education. You can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team Go to and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank this tremendous panel, Chuck Podesta, Mike Restuccia, Kelly Summers, and I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone.